Okay, all right. Now, for those of you who weren't sure, let's all do it together. <laughs> Finish the race and keep the faith. Um, we are celebrating tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow evening the 100th anniversary of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, it's, it's just the first 100 years. Hopefully there's at least 100 more unless Jesus comes first. I'll take the latter, by the way. Uh, Dr. Tom Umble will uh, introduce the speaker of the evening in a minute. I want you to stand and let's pray for what's about to take place. Let's pray together. You came and found us, sought us, looked us up, called us to yourself, and gave us the grace to say yes. We give you praise. We give you praise for the men and women, our brothers and sisters in the faith who have made that possible, whose faithfulness you used to bring us to yourself. We give you praise for our brothers and sisters next to us sharing this space, for their willingness to say yes and for your empowerment of the same. So while we recognize this 100th anniversary, we celebrate you and all that you've done and all that you're calling us to be. And so we ask, use this time. Use this time to shape us more into your likeness as we reflect on where we've come and where we're headed. We ask this believing that it is your will for us to become more like you, for our church to become more like you, for every church to become more like you. So accept this prayer. We pray it in your name, for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. In October 1908, a year of uniting culminated with the merger of a number of holiness bodies and associations to form the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. Representatives from East and West, and most remarkably, North and South, gathered to highlight their common commitment to holiness of heart and life and to form a national denomination. From those humble beginnings in Pilot Point, Texas, the Church of the Nazarene has grown to include 1.7 million members and over 18,000 local congregations in more than 150 countries. Now, this past Sunday, and many of you were a part of that, Nazarenes all over the world remembered and celebrated and shared together in the Lord's Supper. Um, it's only appropriate that Nazarene Bible College join in this centennial observance through this series of services. And we count it a distinct privilege to have Dr. Paul Bassett as our guest speaker. 
Now, Dr. Bassett is a graduate of Olivet Nazarene University and Duke University School of Divinity. From 1969 to 2004, Dr. Bassett was professor of the history of Christianity at Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City, where he continues to teach on an adjunct basis. Uh, you might be interested to know that many of the faculty here at NBC studied under Dr. Bassett, and we live to tell about it. Well, at least most of us. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dr. Bassett's international teaching experience includes assignments in Spain, Costa Rica, South America, Australia, the Philippines, and England. He is the author of numerous books, periodicals, Bible studies, and Sunday school lesson expositions. He is an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene and has served his local church as Sunday school teacher, church board member, interim pastor, and church organist. Maybe we could twist his arm to, well, maybe not. <laughs> in these and other ways, Dr. Bassett has contributed greatly to the mission of our denomination. Uh, Dr. Bassett, we are truly grateful for your influence on our lives and your part in advancing the kingdom, of the cause of Christ to the Church of the Nazarene. We are so glad to have you with us, and we look forward to your presentations. Come, bless you. Thank you. Just uh, two years ago, three years ago, I had the, the privilege of teaching in Chiclayo, Peru, and I asked, how many Nazarenes are there now in Peru? The answer was 55,000. I was born in 1935. I'll do the calculating for you, I'm 73. <laughs> In 1935, we had just begun our work in Peru. There were only 110,000 Nazarenes in the United States, just half in Peru of, uh, that is in Peru, they had half now of what we had in 1935. Uh, the church is is growing rapidly and you're part of that. But it's not church growth that's significant. It is our growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ. That's what counts. <laughs> I was in, I, I don't mean to sound like I travel all over the place, I don't really don't even enjoy it that much. <laughs> but uh, I, I am delighted to be here with you. I was in Oregon uh, for the Oregon Pacific District, one of, uh, well, for both of their camp meetings. And the auditorium uh, was like an arena. That is to say, the, the crowd sat up and you were down here. The preacher 
was uh, Kenneth Pearsall, who at that time was the president of Naz uh, Northwest Nazarene College, now university. And I knew that people really wanted to hear him preach. I was the Bible teacher, so I had the early morning crowd, such as crowd was. <laughs> so I, I told them, uh, now I was very conscious of the fact, uh, partly because I uh, wanted to join them, of the fact that we were going to begin at 10.30, uh, the, the service of the morning, and that Dr. Pearsall would be preaching to us. So I said, now, I'm going to go for 50 minutes, and then I'll stop, and you'll have yourself uh, almost half an hour, 25 minutes, in which you can do what you want to do and then we'll all come back in and enjoy Dr. Pearsall. Well, about halfway up, there was an old couple, and <laughs> he was obviously deaf, and he, he talked like those of us who are getting hard of hearing talk. And <laughs> she said something in his ear that I couldn't hear, but some of the people around could, and he said in his best voice, No, I don't know who he is. I never heard of him. And he doesn't look like much either. <laughs> well, of course, that helped everybody to enjoy themselves. <laughs> And about 30 minutes later, she whispered to him again. And I don't know what she said. I think some of the people nearby knew what she said. But he said, well, if this fella tells the truth, you'll be out of your misery in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So there. <laughs> I do have some serious business to talk about. What I want to talk about tonight is a particular issue, uh, and that may be the wrong way to start. I maybe should start with some kind of general overview of some things. But I want to start with a particular issue because it's one of the burning issues uh, in the church has been for perhaps the last 15, 20 years, and that is how do we engage ourselves as a church in meeting the, the, the societal needs that are all around us, especially amongst the poor, the addicted, and those who have otherwise gone astray. Timothy Smith has twice challenged, I wonder if I could keep myself from blowing up here. <laughs> Timothy Smith has twice challenged the conventional wisdom concerning the development of religion and culture in the United States and has helped our understanding of it. In 1956, he wrote a book called Revivalism and Social Reform Inside of revivalism and social reform, he taught us that far from 
waning and falling ineffectual in the decades from 1840 to 1860, perfectionism found itself gearing itself to the ancient creeds and gearing that drive shaft to social reform. So our tradition was born in that kind of uh, an atmosphere, an atmosphere in which Christian perfection and social reform went together. In fact, Christian perfection played a key role in the widespread attack upon slavery and poverty and greed. Then in 1962, Timothy Smith wrote, Called Unto Holiness, and he stood on its head the received wisdom and said that far from being religious revolts geared to the spiritual needs of the masses, the smaller Wesleyan denominations, such as ours, had as their hallmark loyalty to old patterns in doctrine, rules of behavior, forms of church organization, sacraments, and Sunday school and youth activities. What was new about them, said Smith, was chiefly their willingness to adopt and adapt experimental methods, most of those methods involving service to the poor. It was the older, not the newer, denominations that abandoned their inheritance. It was the main line, not what was considered the sidetrack, <laughs> that had left behind the inheritance of care for the poor. Smith's work, followed by the largely confirmatory stories, uh, uh, studies of people like Melvin Dieter and Charles Edwin Jones and a student of Smith's called Magnuson and Donald Dayton, whom some of you may know. These persons had helped Wesleyan holiness people to see that a strong social conscience and social action are of the very essence, not simply of the, the better nature of their theological and spiritual commitments. But Smith's work appeared when it seemed to many of his earlier readers that evangelicalism in general and the Wesleyan Holiness Movement in particular were in the doldrums regarding social action. This was in the 60s, early 60s. And it seemed that they had been there since the 1920s at least. So they raised the question as to how that had happened. How had the Church of the Nazarene, for instance, fallen into this sort of doldrum or sargasso sea where you just sit and enjoy your religion and never mind the social needs that are around you? Smith had anticipated this question in his work called Unto Holiness, but his more considered response came as he studied North American evangel evangelicalism in general. 
The struggle with theological liberalism, intense and nearly exclusive concentration on personal salvation, and preoccupation with a world denying eschatology, that is, thank goodness Christ is going to come and we'll get out of this world, uh, never mind whatever the new creation is, we're getting out of this one. This had created, these things had created among evangelicals what Smith called the great reversal. But did Smith believe that the Wesleyan Holiness Movement had undergone that great reversal? Certainly Smith believed that the Wesleyan Holiness people were evangelicals, and he did see a decline in official denomination level interest in and support for social action after about 1920. But was this the great reversal? Certainly that's the way that, uh, that others often read him, including many holiness people. These holiness people, with the significant exception of Donald Dayton, began to list reasons for the great reversal tied precisely to their denominational history. And here David Moberg, who popularized Smith's phrase by making it a book title, The Great Reversal, certainly believed that Smith meant to include the holiness people in his story of how the churches left behind their concern for social needs. They left it to the government or to whatever. Just let us worship and sing. Uh, well, I hope they're part of the same thing, but just leave us alone. <laughs> the data seem to show that if Smith meant to include the holiness people, especially the Nazarenes in the Great Reversal, he overstated his case, especially for the period from about 1925 to about 1960. The documents which he examined do lead to the conclusion to which he came. But the place to look is at congregational level materials as opposed to denominational level materials or interchurch administrative level materials. For these congregational level materials seem to tell us that in the period between 1925 and 1950, the social conscience of the holy, holiness people, including the Nazarenes, only flagged slightly. And it may be seen as well that the holiness doctrine of Christian perfection undergirded and motivated, animated that social conscience as it had earlier in the 1800s. After 1950, the social conscience of the holiness people did fade, but never to the point of reversal. By the 1970s, it rejuvenated and even 
uh, heated up <laughs> in the 1980s, a renewal of denominational level and movement level schemes and ministries for the poor. And again, the Wesleyan doctrine of perfection guided that rejuvenation and renewal. So if you get the idea here that I'm saying the doctrine of Christian perfection and concern for the social needs go together, you're right. <laughs> and it's part of our DNA. So let's look at the Westland Holiness Movement and the poor from about 1867 to 1925. Smith's work stimulated what is now an entire generation of scholars, um, maybe two generations. I'm part of one of those generations. Um, Professor Humble is part of the next one. Uh, he's, he's a very young man uh, in my view, <laughs> but a very good young man. I'm proud to have had him and others as students. They got over me. <laughs> they began to test and to refute and to expand and to refine what Smith had found. By the mid-1970s, Melvin Dieter and Charles Edwin Jones and Norris Magnuson and Donald Dayton had confirmed their explanatory power, the, the power of the ideas of Smith for the last half of the 19th century as they applied them to the Wesleyan Holiness movement. Far from being pie in the sky by and by as the Holiness movement was accused of being, far from being pie in the sky by and by and being socially reactionary and being a sectarian backwater, the holiness movement had created and supported numerous schemes, great and small, for alleviating the plight of the poor. The Wesleyan Methodist Connection, as it was then called, and the Free Methodists had led the way with their earlier commitment to radical abolitionism. And then after 1864, with their support of radical reconstruction. The, you know, there were problems with absolute abolitionism as a doctrine. There were problems with radical uh, reconstruction. But they supported them as the best available things to work with. And now they were joined by the Salvation Army in the U.S. and what was to become the Christian and Missionary Alliance to add their number uh, to their number. And then came the Volunteers of America, which was working on uh, the basis of the Salvationists. These three, the Salvation Army, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Volunteers of America, worked primarily in the cities, in the slums, and the new Wesleyan holiness denominations that arose between 1880 and 1920 invested their limited funds heavily in the war on greed and poverty. So they were working both in the 
city middle class and in the slums. Many of the leaders of, the three, of these groups openly advocated socialism. Boo. Most notably and effectively, Catherine Booth. She was an out and out socialist. <laughs> and the first editor of the Herald of Holiness, B.F. Haynes. B.F. Haynes, at the close of his career, was as editor the Nazarene's official week, uh, weekly paper, W-E-E-K-L-Y, had become a national denomination. And its paper was widely read even outside of the denomination. In reality, it was the merger of a series of, well, it was a series of mergers of independent Wesleyan Holiness associations, some of whom, whose congregations dated from the late 1880s. And the series of mergers continues, but the fundamental character-shaping mergers, as it were, took place from 1905 to 1915. During that little period, 1905 to 15, no fewer than 11 holiness associations of one sort and another merged into one. They took the name of the dominant association, a West Coast denomination which grew out of the work of the First Church of the Nazarene, Los Angeles, California. So what we now celebrate, uh, October 13, 1908, was really the fifth business day of the Second General Assembly of the Church of the Nazarene, <laughs> but it was declared in the 1923 General Assembly to be the official date um, for, for the denomination becoming a national denomination. Los Angeles First Nazarene had chosen the name at its founding in 1895 to reflect the character of Christ. P.F. Brzee, its founding pastor and then general superintendent of the developing denomination, insisted that the Nazarene's mission was to preach holiness to the poor. He even opposed uh, any, any, developing any large interest in world mission until we really got hold of the business of the poor at home. That's not, I'm not making a negative criticism there. That's the way he thought. He insisted that was their mission. In that day, preaching to the poor meant active engagement in helping them to alleviate the effects of their poverty. My first congregation was Thomasville, North Carolina. And I remember very well an Easter Sunday morning in March uh, when a young boy came in and his eyes were red from crying. And I said, what, 
what's the problem? He lived in a house that was uh, built up on cement blocks and the wind whistled under the house and came through the floor of the house and it had gotten cold and just cold enough so that the water in the fish tank had frozen. It was by the window. He had just a little jar, really. It was a mason jar with a fish in it, goldfish. And his fish had died. It was his only possession. Yep. <laughs> he was that poor. Most of that congregation was that poor. From its earliest days, Brzee's congregation and then its sister congregations from San Diego to Seattle went on house-to-house -house visits in order to alleviate the poor. Tenement-to-tenement -tenement visitation to do what needed to be done in clothing, feeding, nursing, financially aiding, cleaning, comforting, repairing, educating, and befriending the poor. They visited the jails, the nursing homes, the old age homes as they were then called, the poor farms. Do you know anything about poor farms? Those of us who are over 50 know about poor farms. The poor farms, the orphanages, and the poor wards in the hospitals. They created special ministries to the Mexicans and the Chinese and the Japanese immigrants in those coastal cities in California and Oregon and Washington. They developed means of care for abused women and children, alcoholics and unwed mothers and mothers-to-be. Even before 1900, influenced by the example of the German Methodists in the United States, Brzee instituted the office of deaconess as an office of ordained ministry, but cautioned his people not to think for a moment that this released any of them from ministry to the poor. What Brzee was doing in Los Angeles, J.O. McClurkin was doing quite independently of Brzee in Nashville, and Nazarenes, or someday would-be would Nazarenes, were doing it in New York City, in Chicago, in Providence, Rhode Island, in Cincinnati, and elsewhere. Accurate figures are hard come by. They didn't think in those terms. But by 1919, with a total membership of 25,000, the Church of the Nazarene was sponsoring 32 rescue homes for unwed mothers and mothers-to-be, six homes for orphaned, neglected, abandoned, or delinquent children, 15 rescue missions for the urban poor, especially the homeless, and about a dozen schools aspiring to be liberal arts colleges, established primarily for the education of the poor, 25,000 Nazarenes doing that. How many members are there on the Colorado District? 
Brzee, of course, died in 1915, and when he did, the church felt a little freer to expand its work. Uh, it, it was going to anyway. His um, passing gave them an opportunity to do so without seeming to insult him or to uh, ignore his pleas that we work very well at home before we go abroad. In 1920, five years after his death, Nazarenes in the Northwest United States established a hospital and a nurse's training school at Nampa, Idaho. If you see pictures of Nampa, Idaho in 1920, you know that anybody who went there was half sick. In the period 1920 to 25, the denomination built and staffed hospitals in Swaziland, China, India, and built and staffed clinics in China, India, Guatemala, and Mozambique between 1920 and 1925. All of these facilities were located in heavily populated but difficult to reach places where medical services were non-existent or very primitive. Important to all of this medical work was the Nazarene Medical Missionary Union, which had been organized in 1921 in Southern California. It was apparently a loosely organized association of Nazarene physicians, some of whom lived in the Midwest. My grandfather was one of those. During this period, church periodicals, especially the Herald of Holiness, and missionaries traveling about preaching while on furlough kept local churches informed gave local congregations means for informing others of their own projects. Most of this information came wrapped in a deep sense of urgency with requests for fervent prayer and news of answered prayer as well as requests for money and personnel. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Prayer to thank God and prayer for needs. They never forgot to thank God, and there were always needs. It became especially important for schools, rescue homes, orphanages, and rescue missions to obtain some kind of denomination-wide recognition after about 1920, and support through access to denominational press and to local pulpits and it seemed to the principal administrators of the denomination in the late 19-teens and the early 1920s that too much was being set on their plates or being dumped in their laps. In the 1919 General Assembly, the sole legislative body for the denomination, roughly equivalent to the United Methodist General Conference, and like the General Conference, held every four years, more or less, 
There were five assembly committees in 1919 working with social welfare issues, not counting those treating foreign missions, which were implicitly understood to work with social welfare issues as well as directly with the preaching of the gospel. The assembly of 1919 exulted in its challenge and elected a general orphanage board but it did urge the social welfare boards of the various districts not only to seize the initiative, but also to seek ways to finance existing institutions in their respective areas. In the early 1960s, uh, the board of the Trefeca of the uh, College Hill Church in Nashville decided to put up uh, what came to be known as Treveca Towers. Uh, these are residences uh, for older folks uh, at all levels of care for retired folks. Uh, there was great outcry from uh, denominational leadership, and I'm not, I'm not kicking them here, that this was their responsibility, and <laughs> they expressed it well. <laughs> they, they took it on, uh, but the board of College Hill Church said, the 1923 General Assembly left this to the local churches and districts. We can do this. And they did. Those of you who've been around Nashville have seen Trevecca Towers. They rise very high. They house a lot of people and they've done a power of good, not just for people's bodies, but also they have been a voice for the gospel. There was also then a rationalization of support for the denomination's colleges. Earlier, each college had been allowed to appeal in whatever ways seemed ethical to the whole denomination, each college. And even entirely sanctified folks will go ethically blind in a stiff competition. If you've been in a church softball league, you know. So, after making some difficult decisions as to which institutions should be encouraged to survive, the Denominational Board of Education recommended and the General Assembly enacted a plan giving to each institution a geographical region from which it was to seek its support. Except for soliciting alumni who lived off the zone, each school was to raise funds strictly from within the assigned area, free of interference from any other school. They're trying to rationalize this whole business. These schemes seem to have been in the background of the thinking of the denominational administrators from 1919 onward. Not as a clear model in all cases of social welfare work, but as a kind of paradigm or paradigm. In 1923, 
upon administrative recommendation, the administrative structure of the denomination was simplified, and all of the boards were reduced to committees and amalgamated and made answerable to the General Assembly through a general board which met annually. By 1928, then, the five committees considering social welfare issues had been reduced to three, and in 1932, the three were reduced to one committee considering social welfare issues. This narrowing of structure radically reduced the accessibility of the hundreds of institutions of all sorts to consideration in denomination level meetings. And denomination level literature now tended to pick up only denomination level causes. Some did attempt widely disseminated newspapers and newsletters, but these were discouraged by general level leadership and depended at any rate on the public relations skills of their editors. In turning to their respective districts for support, some found sufficient help for a time, but the Great Depression wrote an end to all but a very few hardy cases of these social institutions that we had created. Other factors took their toll as well. From 1915 onward, leadership devolved upon individuals who were scarcely aware of the problems of urban society in any first-hand way, feeling very deeply the need to stay the course of their predecessors. They understood that course in terms dictated in large part by the modernist fundamentalist controversy that you know about, a controversy that had barely begun when the church was established on the fifth business day of the Second General Assembly, 13 October 1908. Their predecessors had avowed that the sole purpose of the Church of the Nazarene was to proclaim full salvation. It was then called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. And their predecessors had seen social action as a way of proclaiming full salvation, entire sanctification. The new leadership haltingly agreed that this was so, but it could not really feel that it was so. And rather than turning to their own past for their model, they looked at the liberal social gospelers and felt themselves compelled to condemn the ideas of the liberal gospelers and then to see that their ideas came from, or that their activism, social activism, came from their ideas, and so you reject social activism too. You forget that you had been on a different track for doing social action. It wasn't just some idealization of the human being, it was love for Christ, for sinners <laughs> that had set you on that track. They found their own past unusable, largely because their understanding of poverty was romanticized. 
oppression and exploitation were either escapable or ignorable. One in which the individual will holds the key to response and one in which sin is solely, always and ever a matter of personal choice. They saw both the church and society as a whole as agglomerations of individuals, not really as organisms, and certainly not as unities. So it is that the general superintendent's insistence to the 1923 General Assembly that every effort should be made to keep down institutionalism, that is the creation of new schemes of social amelioration, surprised no one, nor did their insistence that the primary mission of the denomination was saving souls. Those who pointed out the fact that it was primarily the poor whom the Nazarenes uh, had, uh, uh, had uh, helped <laughs> when they came into existence and helped to save, and that such enterprise was required and social activism was necessary, those pleas were not heard. But they were heard in the local congregations and by the pastors. There was then a great reversal in the willingness of the general administrators of the denomination to keep enterprises except generally funded enterprises before the church at large. But it must be recalled that few of these enterprises received general church funds anyway. They simply enjoyed access to the church at large and to the committee agendas of the general, of the general church. The more important factor is the devolution of administrative authority into the hands of persons who simply did not understand urban poverty, but who believed that they could separate saving the souls of the poor from intentional organized ministry to their minds and to their bodies. If this analysis is correct, the Nazarenes did not suffer the great reversal so much as they suffered a great truncation some kind of an ectomy within the conscience. Until the 1950s, when the military and business styles of leadership captured the field in North Atlantic culture, the general superintendents of the Church of the Nazarene governed primarily by force of character rather than by position or law. This placed almost all of the initiative and most of the authority for developing and sustaining the day-to-day -day life of a congregation in the hands of the pastors and the people themselves. And it was under this circumstance that Nazarenes were ministering to the poor for almost half a century. General officers might, as private persons, be interested in such ministries but except for the activities of the foreign missionaries, general officers took little or no official 
official interest. This lack of official interest gives the semblance of accuracy and validity to the idea of the great reversal, that we had been interested in social welfare and then we forgot it. It's true that one by one, the rescue missions, the rescue homes, the orphanages, and the rest closed. Local or even district support simply could not sustain them. But now pastors and people did what they could, even in the depths of the Great Depression, until the post-war building boom, most of the older, experienced Nazarene congregations in the larger cities remained where they had been for a generation, serving both the poor around them and those who had moved out but still came back in to worship and to serve. Older first churches in Atlanta, Nashville, Los Angeles, Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Little Rock, Dallas, Dayton, Denver, Seattle, Springfield, Portland, Columbus, Pittsburgh, and elsewhere, Louisville, San Diego, San Francisco, Spokane. All of these continued active programs of feeding and clothing and legally defending the poor, providing shelter for the indigent and the homeless, and protecting and finding professional help for the abused and abusers right up to the eve of World War II when nearly full employment momentarily alleviated considerably both poverty and its effects. Often these inner city congregations were among the largest on their districts which gave them a large voice in district policies and which made them models for others to follow. Each of the congregations that I indicated and several dozen others had long had in their memberships significant cadres of professional people, physicians, attorneys, teachers, businessmen, who had originally joined these churches or their parents had joined and they had followed in their parents' boots in order to be of direct assistance to the poor. They saw those churches as ways of serving the poor. Most of these and at least 200 other congregations that one could document regularly paid the tuitions and fees of their own young who needed aid in order to go to college. Often these funds came through the local church treasury but were actually large gifts from individuals or several individuals associated for the purpose uh, for the purpose uh, 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 for the purpose of helping folks but the donors wished to remain anonymous in Chicago first and in Indianapolis first in Columbus first and Pasadena first and Nashville first there's evidence that as much as $15,000 a year was distributed in food and clothing and health care at least that and we're talking about the depression that $15,000 now would be um, probably $250,000, something like that. So it was until the end of World War II or a little bit later 
Let me come, let me skip over just a little bit here because I, I want to, I know you want to, you want to finish. You want me to finish. General leadership, at, at, you must understand here, I'm carrying on a lover's quarrel. I, I, I've been a Nazarene. <laughs> I'm a third generation Nazarene, even at my age. <laughs> um, my grandparents came into the church before my parents were born in Columbus, Ohio, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So my roots are deep, but I'm a Nazarene because I chose to be. <laughs> not because, not because uh, they were. It's my church. It's your church. General leadership actively opposed several proposed social welfare programs developed by local congregations in the 60s and 70s with sharp warnings about walking away from the Nazarene tradition of soul winning. The most, note, the most noteworthy case developed in Nashville, and I told you about the College Hill Church and its pastor and the building of several high-rise towers. No general denominational funds were ever asked for, nor were district funds nor was the project a legal or financial encumbrance on the local congregation. The corporation board, all Nazarenes, legally separated itself from College Hill Church, which left the general superintendents and district superintendent without jurisdiction. But they seem not to have recognized that in their attempts to halt the project, the leadership that is, by threatening the disciplining of the pastor, and the clerical members of the project's board. Of course, administrative leadership did not always operate so heavy-handedly. In fact, its record regarding social welfare enterprise was mixed. The general leaders supported the philanthropic work of the missionaries, though they seldom approved the construction or development of any new projects. And in the United States, they generally applauded small-scale local welfare projects, but they never took any in initiative even in suggesting enterprises that might be carried out under local auspices. The mandate of the new Department of Evangelism established in 1956 said not one word reflective of the concern of the first two generations of Nazarenes that it was the mission of the new denomination to preach full salvation to the poor. And yet, ironically, it appealed to the denomination's long history of commitment to winning souls as a first priority. Viewed from this angle, the idea of the great reversal makes sense. And so it has seemed to most who have analyzed it. But in the last decade, Nazarenes observed or could have observed some anomalies which on reflection would seem to indicate that even in the 60s and 70s, when the great reversal seemed finally to apply, the Wesleyan social conscience still lived, even with some rigor among them. And the course of events since the early 80s would seem to confirm it. Nazarenes took contradictory positions regarding the social upheavals of the 1960s and 70s. Generally speaking, the administrative leadership of the denomination 
took a defensive uh, posture and blamed the troubles on leftist influences in the media and in the educational system. There was some justice in that charge. Law and order could resolve the problems. Almost no appeals for applying Wesleyan understanding of salvation, which is to say the Wesleyan ethic as well, came from that direction. Evangelism and social betterment were seen as two vastly different causes, and the church had to do with but one of them. In the meantime, on the Nazarene College campuses, and among younger but experienced pastors, there was arising a powerful and active interest in the history of the denomination and of the movement of which it is a past, along with the reinvigoration of interest in Wesley and Wesleyanism, especially at the point of a genuinely Wesleyan doctrine of entire, doctrine of entire sanctification. And in both instances, the social implications surfaced quickly. At Nazarene Theological Seminary, for instance, a significant number of the brightest and best of the classes of 58 to 62 left the Church of the Nazarene because the narrow scholastic approach to holiness that they were hearing simply did not square with what they already knew of Wesleyanism, and it was quite inadequate as they saw it to meet the needs to which they had been or were being awakened. Then too, they fell under heavy rebuke and censure from some denominational leaders. Among Nazarenes at large, I'm talking about my own generation when it was young, when it was making decisions, beginning to make decisions about what to do. Among Nazarenes at large, NTS became suspect. The caricature of it carried about the denomination by various sources said that it was not producing the holiness preachers, true holiness preachers or authentic Nazarenes. Only as the faculty learned to wed the very lively social conscience of the students to a critically appreciative denominational loyalty did Nazarenes at large begin to accept the social implications arising from that reinvigorated Wesleyan theology. The faculty brought off the wedding largely by appealing to the history of the tradition, which thanks to Smith and Dieter and Jones and Magnuson and Dayton could now be seen and understand, uh, understood. And they appealed too to Wesley and to the early Wesleyans as synthesizers of perfectionist doctrine and social action, not so much as models, but as trailblazers. Critics still abounded, but significant enrollment increases and the enthusiasm for the school and for the possibilities of service through the denomination kept the critics at bay. And now, with increasing frequency, word came through of social ministries of long standing and of renewed social ministries to say nothing of the rapid development of new ones. 
Tom Neese, a 1961 NTS alumnus, and already in 1970, pastor of affluent and influential Washington, D.C. first, left that pulpit in the mid-1970s to establish the community of hope in the inner northwest ghetto of the District of Columbia. Gilbert Lee, we discovered, had developed New World Ministries, an agency helping the urban poor African Americans in Chicago, an agency with more than a little political clout on the teeming South Side. Paul Moore went into Manhattan and the Nazarenes bought the Lambs Club, and Clarence Jacobs, longtime pastor of a thriving congregation in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York City, already for 15 years in 1970, suddenly became visible. Soon, several hundred projects came into, onto our screens as Nazarenes. In 1982, finally having decided that leadership should catch up to the rest, a general commission requested and the Department of Church Extension sent out a questionnaire to most of the Nazarene pastors in the U.S. inquiring about such social services that they might be involved in. Roughly 3,000 out of 10,000, one-third, came back and 2,000 of them indicated social ministries involving significant levels of financial and temporal in investment by pastors and congregations. There was a lot more going on than we thought. An independent and therefore limited follow-up study sought to determine the role of Wesleyan doctrine in Christian perfection in these enterprises. In something like 87%, the doctrine and its correlative experience, entire sanctification, at the very foundation, lay at the very foundation of the work. The purpose of the programs was the proclamation of full salvation, and the engagement in those programs offered opportunity to give living witness to the meaning of the preached word. Further, most believe that genuine amelioration should come only as individuals and congregations allowed the Spirit to work in perfect love. Of the remaining 13%, almost all recorded some correlation of activity to the doctrine and experience, but none, placed it, none of those placed it at the very heart of the matter. In 1985, the newly inaugurated General Office of Compassionate Ministries and the Nazarene Theological Seminary join, jointly sponsored a conference on compassionate ministries, anticipating attendance of 60 or so. The sponsors were overwhelmed by 600 teachers, pastors, and some students. General church leadership was conspicuous by its absence, and some, especially those with special investment in evangelism and church growth, solemnly warned that social ministries must not replace winning souls. But the denominational headquarters was now forced to get back in the game. That conference galvanized those engaged in social ministries and led them to create formal and informal networks. 
and it inspirited a number of persons who suspected that they had been working in near isolation. It animated them. It, it enlivened them. Further, it created a desire to strengthen the theological foundations of such work, a desire that is as yet not being met with the energy which it deserves, that is getting out the word that this business of social action must arise from our commitment to the doctrine of entire sanctification, or it'll kill itself. Pleasantly surprising and encouraging, though probably not of lasting consequence, was the number of leaders in social ministries who took part in the conference, whose roots, including the yearning to bring good news to the poor, were in the Church of the Nazarene, though now were members of other denominations. Richard Schubert, president of the American Rubber, American Rubber Cross, the American Red Cross. I am about done. <laughs> Paul Reese, then vice president of World Vision International. Paul McCleary, from 19, uh, 1975 to 1984, director of Church World Seri Services. <laughs> Tom Neese, director of the City of Hope, Washington, D.C. Wallace Erickson, president of Compassion International. John Peters, president of World Neighbors. And Ray Knighton, who headed a group of medical persons who stood ready and continued to stand ready to take medicines, technical equipment, and personnel anywhere in the world on short notice. All of these spoke of serving the poor in terms that the first generations of Wesleyan holiness people understood and developed and understood to be rooted in their commitment to absolute love of God and neighbor. Some had suffered at the hands of a generation of holiness people who, however well-meaning, had lost touch with the tradition's true past and its most consistent theology. Others were converts snatched from the jaws of the great reversal, and others represented the reintensification of the holiness social vision that was always there. They represented the whole range of denominational response to the mandate to preach the gospel to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor physically, the poor emotionally, the poor materially. In 1990, the Commission on Faith and Order of the National Council of Churches, meeting in Burlingame, California, took an evening to worship at the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco. As you know, the Metropolitan Community Churches are uh, proud of their homosexuality. They came back, and I was part of the, part of the uh, Faith and Order Commission at that time. They came back, and we reflected aloud on the service, and several members of one study group in the commission expressed surprise that one of the participating clergy was a holiness minister. 
a Nazarene who was not himself a homosexual but was there to preach the gospel. He had been invited there to preach the gospel. I don't know whether I could do that. They compounded their surprise in learning that the denomination condemns homosexuality and compounded it even more on learning that at least half a dozen ministries in the inner city sponsored by Nazarene by Nazarenes actively include ministry to the homosexual communities around them not to perpetuate homosexuality but to meet the needs of these people and to call them to Christ out of the love of Christ not to encourage them in their activity but to encourage them to give their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus, who can create anew as he has you and me. Their surprise turned up in a, public, in a published collection of papers, and their surprise irritated several denominational officials into whose hands the publications came. They were long, these, these officials were long deeply ambivalent at best about such ministries. Their concern now was publicity. So they promptly converted an opportunity to educate and to lead us all into an occasion for disciplining and an occasion for evangelism of a proper sort where we bring Christ to the whole person and give witness out of who we are. They converted it into an occasion for punishing and for gay bashing. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. At present, this represents the status of the denomination's social conscience rather well. A re-intensification of the original social vision, including renewed commitment to our Wesleyan theological foundation the whole argument about spirit baptism and all of that is not because we're losing the doctrine, it's because we're reawakening it. The spirit is getting back to us. Let's get to work. It's also re-entering denominational offices and among the constituted leaders at the highest level, the nurturing of the great revival, of the great reversal, has ceased. And I really think we may be on the edge of the great reviving. Now I've got to add a postscript, and I've 
taken more time than I should have. Uh, please don't understand this as bashing the leadership. I'm just explaining how things went and go. And if somebody writes a history of the Nazarene Seminary, I hope they're honest enough to say Bassett was a problem here. <laughs> they won't understand the history of the seminary if they don't understand that we had problems. But that we faced them in love. I pray for our general leadership. They have a difficult task, terribly difficult. They are accountable, but may they be accountable to a people who themselves, out of the love of God with all the heart and soul, mind and strength, and love of neighbor as themselves, have made themselves fully accountable to each other and to our God. Thanks for your time. Thank you for the reminder of who we were and who we're called to be. Go in his peace.